Welcome to the Smart City Podcast, the technology program that looks at how buildings, communities, and cities are becoming smarter, more efficient, and more connected. We look at everything from the big ideas to drilling down to individual projects and innovative ideas that impact your day-to-day life. The Smart City Podcast is brought to you by Locomobi World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless, and secure solutions. This is episode 44, recorded on July 6th, 2022. Stephen Kennedy Smith is the chair and co-founder of a couple of biotech and human health companies. He's teamed with Cheryl Buchanan, an attorney and a co-founder of Writers Without Margins, a nonprofit that uses the power of storytelling to heal. This is a different sort of smart cities topic. There's very little tech involved here, but it does look at a smart approach to dealing with the problems cities have today. We'll also get to the film In Their Shoes, Unheard Stories of Reentry and Recovery. We hooked up with Stephen and Cheryl from their respective offices in Boston. So um, the reason I said this is a little bit different, because usually we end up talking to people who are building metaverses. We talk to people who are into all kinds of data, data analytics. We talk to people who are in charge of you know, property management, that sort of thing in our, in our professional to professional podcast here. So uh, what we're doing with you is, is something that we really haven't done before. Explain to us what the project is that you guys started and how you came to this movie. Yeah. Can I start Cheryl? Is that okay? So I'm actually, I, a biotech entrepreneur and uh, I've started a number of companies, including a company that, you know, uses his digital analytics to improve natural compounds for human health. But the reason that I'm interested in what um, Cheryl is doing is, you know, a a while ago, um, this isn't the only reason, but I went to Israel to a technology conference and I met Shimon Perez um, before he passed away. And um, he's sort of the father of the tech industry in Israel. And he was giving a talk and he said, you know, when when we created the state of Israel, we had a dream. Now the dream is bigger than the reality. And so you need to dream big. And then the next thing he said is, so much technology. Israel is one of the leaders in the world in technology, but technology without morality is useless. And so I think, um, you know, the reason that I am interested in the humanities and interested in storytelling and interested in filmmaking and interested in art it's because we, we have to have, you know, the motto of MIT is mind and hand, but we also need the heart. And particularly in America right now, we need, um, we need stories that bind us together. Um, we need stories that educate people about communities that are left out of the mainstream conversation. Um, and we need stories to inspire us and connect us. So that's really what the film is about, and it's really Cheryl's film. But I just wanted to make the connection between what we're doing and what you guys are doing, which is kind of leading the conversation about how do we change society better, right? Using technology and using all the tools that we have. Yeah, one of the things that we talk about often is uh, how technology connects us together. But there, <laughs> there's a social aspect. There are people involved. And you can connect people together with fiber and 5G, but if you don't have the compassion to deal with the, you know, the meat bags that are being connected, then, you know, what's it all for, right? Absolutely. So, Cheryl, tell, tell us about the movie. 
Well, yeah, thank you. Um, my, my, my initial background was, was actually in law. And I, I practiced law for about 10 years in Los Angeles. And what I was seeing was, um, I was, I was doing sexual assault and child molestation cases, um, in, in the civil litigation. And what I was recognizing was this power of storytelling and solidarity and, and silence breaking to really potentially reduce stigma. And when people had actually been, sort of locked in their own minds for for so long and sort of trapped in, in these ideas of who they were and who they were told that they were um, based on early childhood trauma. What might happen and what could happen is once they had the power to kind of re-see or revise their own stories, um, there was really potential to change the narrative from there forward. And I was actually dealing with people who had dealt with, you know, in the in the current um, in the current presence of, of what they were, were grappling with was, you know, addiction, mental health, criminal histories. Um, and, you know, they were sort of wound up in, in these problematic narratives. But when they had the, the potential just to literally write down what had occurred and to talk about what had occurred for the first time and move through that, you know, there was things that happened from there forward. And, you know, hundreds of people coming together and doing that together was probably more important than the legal outcomes. So what happened after I did that for 10 years was I started with myself saying, okay, I, I need to process what I had, had witnessed and, and what I had been through, just, you know, being side by side with folks. And then I came to Boston to actually learn, you know, the literary craft and the literary, you know, art of, of how to do that. And I lasted, you know, one semester in the academic world and said, you know, there's there's a homeless shelter across the street. There's a hospital across the street. How and why aren't we using these tools with folks that are still kind of spinning in those worlds? And there's so much potential for these, you know, universes that have these invisible walls between them to work together. So I actually started by going to, you know, the hospitals and the shelters and said, can we work together to, you know, kind of bridge these gaps? And when I couldn't find anyone that was actually actively doing that, it was Stephen who, you know, pushed me, I'd say first encouraged me and then pushed me to say, you know, if it doesn't already exist, exist, you have to build it yourself. And that's why we started the nonprofit together. And once we started the nonprofit together, I realized that folks were not at the table actively involved in telling the story and that there was like a, a, a public education element to allowing them to be part of a public policy conversation once those stories were told in small rooms, you know, and a larger dialogue that people really, there were universal aspects to having them understand one another. One thing that Cheryl didn't say is she's one of the lead attorneys on the Catholic Church cases in Los Angeles. And, but the connection kind of is important. right between Canada too, right? And the religious schools and everything Absolutely. that Canada has been through and the importance of those individuals surfacing and telling their stories and having, you know, the country understand what had happened and deal with what had happened. And, and that's, you know, um, one of the things that Cheryl contributed to here in, in the United States as well. Oh, Stephen, you're a, a biotech entrepreneur. How did you get involved in this kind of social activism? Yeah, so I used to teach at Harvard, actually, and I taught uh, negotiation, but I also taught a course called Literature of Social Reflection. And that was the most popular course at Harvard. I taught with a very famous uh, professor named Robert Coles, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his work on children. But the premise of the course really was that um, the human being 
the brain of the human is distinguished from every other species by its ability to organize the world through storytelling and narrative. And so what Dr. Coles did was lead people through literature to find and discover their own, you know, meaning and purpose in life. And so I think this is something that not only, this is the whole tradition of Western philosophy, right? And going back to the Iliad, going back to the Odyssey, going back to Dante's Inferno, these are all these epic journeys of the individual which provide, you know, a kind of meaning for existence. Well, but, but Stephen, I mean, he's being modest, by the way. Um, but Stephen's always been involved in many types of caregiving uh, to, to, to others because, and, he, and he's not going to talk about it, and I'm not going to make it a big issue, but he comes from the, uh, Stephen Kennedy Smith. So the Kennedy family um, has always been involved, even to charities like Special Olympics um, and other things to help people. And so I'm not shocked when Stephen is doing something like this. This is what he does. So, Cheryl, let's talk about the power of storytelling and how that can be healing. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, you know, it's interesting, and I, and I appreciate you know Grant bringing up that this is this is sort of in Stephen's genetic code too. <laughs> because even before I met him, I was saying, why isn't this happening? Because I had looked at what, you know, what the the group that his mom was one of the founders of at, at NYU, and and she was leading this this work with Sharon Olds, another a famous poet who's a role model of mine. And they, they were doing this. They were doing this work with veterans, with the children's hospital and, you know, other. And she, of course, started the very special arts with, with, with veterans, you know, folks right? that were disabled doing amazing artwork. So, like, I, I knew this existed. This is not revolutionary for me. And it's, you know, as old as cave paintings. And, you know, th this work is as old as time. But what I... As far as the healing, there is evidence-based work. And it is, you know, James Pennybacker is the, the leading, you know, sort of seminal um, researcher nationally. And he does appear in the film. And, you know, he was doing the, I say nationally, he's doing the global work that shows that, you know, behaviorally, psychologically, emotionally, there are changes in the brain that take place. But not just the brain, but white cells, T cells, you know, there's there's studies that show that, you know, in AIDS patients and cancer patients, by writing 20 minutes a day about your experiences, you actually change your your health. And you can truly... Wait, wait, stop, stop. Okay. How, I, how do you change... No, no, no. I'm just curious. How, how do you... I want you to go a little slower on that and explain to me how okay, I will. writing stuff down has a physiological reaction. Well, I'll... I'll go slower, but I'll also give it to you in layman's terms, which are the terms I understand. I'm not trying to dumb it down for you. It's it's for me. But what happens is there is a the part of your brain that stores memory and emotion and will literally hold understanding and experience. And you will continue to recirculate and remember and reform the same emotional self. And that will stay in your brain. And, and the and Stephen brought up veterans. The most common way we hear about PTSD is, you know, the sort of triggers. We just had Fourth of July here in the U.S. So there's a firework and you will remember gunshots. Perhaps that's not just veterans, unfortunately. Um, not that it's fortunate for them. But that is a re-experiencing 
of a traumatic memory. Now that will resurface and resurface and resurface in the same part of the brain until a person chooses to take that memory and move it to the part of the brain, which is a different part of the brain that utilizes memory in a formative structural language-based space. So when you sit down and rewrite your story, utilizing a different way of making meaning of it, you will literally change the way you think, feel, and behave. Oh, so so you you redistribute the load of the trauma over other parts of the brain. Absolutely. I get it. So that it it doesn't just re-trigger and re-trigger and re-trigger in ways that are associative and often destructive. Got it. You know, it's an analogy in sports is almost all Olympic athletes now do visualization. So essentially, they're repatterning their brain to a different type of experience that they can then enact. And storytelling works a lot in the same way. You're actually just reframing the narrative. And when you reframe the narrative, it has all sort of downstream biological impacts because you're changing your stress hormones, right? You're, you're changing your immune function because you're reducing your level of stress and anxiety. And, and so it does have health implications. You're increasing your level of empathy and connection, which is fundamental to the human organism for health. So do you encourage people to tell stories, write down stories? Do you give them access to stories like books and literature to help them deal with their, with their trauma? Or how does it all work? You're asking all the right questions. So I appreciate that. So we do two things that are not necessarily what all writing groups do. And it's a little bit of, um, we don't necessarily lead with this. This is therapeutic for you. We don't, we're not heavy handed about it. And we certainly don't ask people to write about trauma. And I think that's an important thing to say too. We're not therapists, although some of our facilitators are therapists. They aren't when they're leading our groups. But what we do is we both do you know, exposure to literature because there are the universal themes, you know, whether it's from a hundred years ago or it's a contemporary artist that may be more representative of the population in the room. Um, we do absolutely do the, the bibliotherapy, which is reading and relating to another person's story. And Stephen brought up empathy. And that is often, you know, the, the best way to write in another person's point of view, write in another person's voice, understand another person's experience, and also the least invasive way to talk about yourself. What do you think the author is experiencing? What do you think the author's intent was? And it can lead the conversation in whatever direction it goes. And then we also give the writing prompts. You know, um, let's talk about uh, an experience in nature. Now, that person, again, has license to take that in whatever way it's comfortable for them. If they want to write about an experience that was uncomfortable in childhood, they'll go there. If they want to write about some sort of peace, tranquility, serenity, clarity, you know, that's where they are in that day. And that can be just as useful. So that's the writing part. Um, I guess you're, for some people, you're teaching them literature and, 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 and and critical analysis of other people's writing too. Is that correct? Absolutely. And we often are sort of seeking other leaders in the room. People can come in with extensive formal education and that's an opportunity for them to be, you know, skill building and, and communication building as well. But, you know, other people will come in extremely, you know, um, concerned or ashamed of their lack of, of, you know, literary background as well. But, you know, it's, it's, it's unimportant. 
when a, a person is, you know, there to explore, you know, their self and support others. What if a person, what if a person can't read? That happens too. Then they're, you know, if they have a, a limited um, literacy, then w- there's certain skills we talk to our facilitators about. Don't ever call on anyone to read, you know, really basic somebody, because you'll hear things like, oh, I forgot my glasses, you know, they're. And, and uh, it's an excuse. It's, of course. But, you know, they're still there to listen and hear someone else's story. And that can be, you know, really helpful too. Can you give us a, like a case study uh, of, of how this has actually worked for an individual? Hmm. You know, I think hearing the changes in language and how a person expresses their own ways of talking about themselves. If you ask somebody to write their bio for the journal, it can be one of the most challenging things they do when they've been incarcerated for several years and they've literally gone by a number for the vast majority of, I don't even want to say their adulthood. A lot of the folks that we deal with have been in the juvenile justice system and the foster care system. And they've been referred to as, you know, W102358. Um, And you ask them to write a bio for the back of the book if they've submitted a piece. It's very hard for them to come up with you know, my name is Stephen. I've taught literature at Harvard. I'm a biotech entrepreneur. It's very easy for Stephen to rattle off six sentences about himself. But to hear somebody from their introduction in the workshop to their bio at the end of the group, when they can say, I'm an emerging writer who enjoys um, the poetic form of haiku because of its simplicity, and I'm interested in... Um, doing more with engineering when I, you know, get out just to say something like that about interests and identity. So the other, just to respond to your question, the film that, um, that Cheryl made follows the lives of four men, uh, who emerge from prison and come into this writing group. And, and over the next year, you kind of see how their lives unfold and what happens. So, that film sort of dramatizes, I think, both the challenge and the opportunity. Um, if you look at the mass prison system, about 75% of the people in the Massachusetts prison system came out of foster care. So what you're dealing with is a population of people who didn't have successful parents, who were traumatized, who were you know, um, sent around to different families, and ended up, you know, with with substance abuse and mental health and and criminal records because that's the only opportunity they had. So, what what Cheryl is is working with is kind of helping those people to reframe their lives and retell their stories and see themselves in a different way. I ran into a woman earlier this year who worked with. Uh, a nonprofit in Cleveland, mm-hmm. and her target was uh, children of incarcerated parents and children who have also become the victims of gun violence and then themselves have been incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that we talked about is like, how do you get these people to talk? Because they lived mm-hmm. under a cone of silence. They have never been asked their opinion on anything. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you bring them out of their shells in order to get into – I guess this is a certain amount of self-actualization and uh, an, an incredible amount of, of talk therapy. 
or the equivalent of, isn't it? You know, it, it is. I think it's trust building initially. There has to be some level of, um, of you know, why do you want to know this? The, and, the, and doing the film was a really interesting project because there had to be an understanding that this wasn't exploitation, that this wasn't some sort of di- disaster tourism into the lives of others. I think you asked me about success stories. Of course, I'm thinking about that right now. There are three folks um, currently that have come out of our, our prison reentry program that are have leadership roles in our nonprofit. And I think seeing that kind of, you know, credible messengers is speaks volumes to anything that I could say to somebody about why they they ought to talk to me. Um, you know, that relationship building is is really um, resonates for others. I think that all of our our workshops are based on I mentioned, you know, representation before is based on, you know, why should I listen to you? Why? What is what you say? matter to me. Okay, how do you decide or do you decide how a workshop, what people should be in each workshop? And I bring that up for a reason. Um, one of the charities I've been involved with my whole life is Children's Center for Ability. And we have seven, 800 cases at any one time. But these kids all come from broken homes. Probably they're all hurt. So they stole a car, drove in their food, broke their neck. All bad situations. But you can't put certain kids with other kids because some want to commit suicide. Um, some are going to affect the actual program you're trying to run, even though you want to give everyone fair access. So how do you how do you go through all that? About who should be in a group dynamic, you mean? Yeah. Absolutely. And the dynamic can be so effective. Well, I I understand what you're saying. I, I don't know that I could decide that. And in some ways it's pre-prescribed for us because we go into a, a treatment center or a re-entry center or a, um, a mental health center and, and we're working with community partners where it's, it's already designated. And, ah. and I think that we would be maybe out of our depth if we had to make those decisions. And that's um, we've with, you know, with COVID we weren't, able to go to any of those places for some amount of time. And this is sort of a technology response that we were sort of like everyone else put into the online world. And that's never what we'd done before. So we had that sudden, you know, disruption of, oh my gosh, we have to do online. And we had all these people who didn't know each other, even in online groups. And that was a little destabilizing. Like, oh, what if, what if somebody says something that really is, you know, not appropriate for the other people in the room because normally I'm, I'm, I'm a mama bear. I'm watching everybody. And it, it's a really good question what you're, you're asking. But one thing that was interesting, um, Cheryl continued to teach a live workshop in Suffolk County jail throughout COVID and one, and, and they had the whole jail in lockdown. I actually went in once and, and watched the participants read their work and I'm not kidding, the guards and the warden and everyone came and watched these guys and these women read this poetry that they had written themselves and they had tears in their eyes. Wow. Um, and nobody was um, acting up. Nobody was, they were all as proud as could be. And there were some very tough cats in that, in that jail. Well, you know, that's, it, it's fascinating to think that you would have some real hardened criminal, somebody who is doing a hard time, and you convince them or you lead them to writing poetry? I mean, that's 
That's that's it's a movie. <laughs> it is a movie. That's it. You got to see the movie. Oh, please right. watch the movie. I want you all to watch the yeah, movie. Yeah. What's the name of the movie, Cheryl? And how can you get it? The movie. I, in Their Shoes, Unheard Stories of Reentry and Recovery. It's And it, it, you can watch it in Canada. You can. But let me ask some. So you've run something. We have to always ask it to everybody. Um, obviously, COVID was a pretty tough time for all yes. of us. And it affected everybody's lives, not just people in prisons, but everyone's lives. Um, but how did COVID affect your program to continue to launch it? Make sure people keep that positive attitude. I know you went online, mm-hmm. um, but what challenges did you have to overcome? COVID, I think we're still understanding how hard it was because so much of it was covert and behind the scenes and and happened behind closed doors. I mean, we know what happened in the streets because it's exposed yeah. and we always see what we see and, and people are able to either look away or not look away, but it's out there in the streets. But, you know, it's I, the New York Times recently referred to the overdose rates as the other public health crisis during COVID. I get you. I get you. It was just I mean, for for many reasons, it was the mental health you know, compounded by by mental health and isolation issues. Um, but also, you know, people couldn't access treatment, even if they normally wanted to access treatment. They couldn't get into treatment centers because of the lack of social distancing. And um, it was just really ugly. So I think that that was something that we, did that affect our programs per se? I mean, it, it's hard to kind of untangle, you know, that from us because our populations are so impacted. You know, that's purposely where we go and what we do. Is this just a Massachusetts thing or do you have chapters everywhere? We, uh, well, good question now that we're in line. Um, so we've sort of broadened our our reach, but um, we are a Massachusetts nonprofit and we're always looking at how we can scale more. And now we've sort of inadvertently gone in those directions. And, you know, we want to, we want to be bigger and the movies sort of put us out there in the world too. Now, Stephen, is this, is this the program you brought to me a few years ago for donations and, and it talked about, it was to do with reading. Cause I don't remember, it's not very old in this program. Oh yes, it is. Um, I don't, how how old is the nonprofit now, Cheryl? I'm, 2015, so we're about seven plus years old, going on to eight. Yes. Yeah, I remember when Steve was talking about in the early age. And also, you know, Grant, back at you. You're you're a great um, philanthropist and someone who cares about people, and you're very kind to. And you, Alan, as well, have us on the show, and um, appreciate all you guys are doing to enrich, you know, the conversation around how we build better communities through technology and other ways. How can, how can we help? How can anybody help? Well, well, thank you for bringing us here to have this conversation and to, to open it up to, um, sort of the, the larger questions, because, you know, we are a, a sort of a smaller, uh, nonprofit and, but it's bigger ideas. I appreciate you. And so, yeah, to, to respond to that directly, though, <laughs> you, can, you can watch the film. You can get it on iTunes and, and a bunch of other platforms. Amazon um, Prime, YouTube, Vimeo, Spectrum. And we'll make sure we share it on ours as well. Thank you. You can go to our website, um, writerswithoutmargins.com. We have some beautiful... Dot org, dot org. Oh, dot org, okay. And- or in their shoes, film.com. And we have some beautiful prints that were done by uh, a fabulous, uh, well-known artist. 
that um, he donated to the nonprofit and they're limited edition prints. If you want a, a beautiful uh, print for your summer home or um, check it out. Sounds great. And it, it's all tax deductible donation. And um, yeah. And, and we, we welcome any donations as well. The movie is called In Their Shoes, Unheard Stories of Reentry and Discovery uh, by Cheryl Buchanan with help from Stephen Kennedy Smith. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. Good luck with this. It is a problem that's not going away anytime soon. And this is one of the most compassionate initiatives that I've ever heard of in my life. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap for another episode of the Smart City Podcast. Thanks to Stephen Kennedy Smith and Cheryl Buchanan for telling us about their project. And again, the name of the film is In Their Shoes, Unheard Stories of Reentry and Recovery. If you have any questions or comments, send them to feedback at thesmartcity.blog. We do have a website, lots of stuff there, thesmartcity.blog. Just note that URL, it is a .blog domain. And there's lots of stuff there that I think you'll enjoy. The Smart City Podcast, brought to you by Locomobi World. Moving the world through sustainable, frictionless solutions. Executive producer is Grant Furley. Technical production by Rob Johnston. Executive Assistant is Andrew Crawford. I'm Ellen Cross, and we'll see you next time.